Nothing in this podcast is intended as investment advice, and the people in this podcast may have a position in the stocks they talk about. Do not buy anything based solely on a tip or recommendation or the content of this podcast. Do your own research. Welcome, Steve Bassey, to the All Points West podcast. Steve is the founder and chief executive of NARF Industries, a London-listed but US-based cybersecurity group with marquee clients like the US Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, also known as DARPA, which is kind of the R&D arm of the Department of Defense that's responsible for the development of emerging technologies for use by the military. NARF also works for big Fortune 500 companies. Now, Steve's a cybersecurity expert and well-known in the industry with more than 20 years' experience. He started as a computer scientist and cybersecurity researcher for the Naval Research Laboratory after completing his master's in computer science from the Naval Postgraduate School. So the, the world of cybersecurity is a bit of a mystery to the uninitiated. If you could give us a flavor of the type of work that NARF does, both whether that's for US government and also some more commercial stuff that you do. So I can't get too much into the exact substance of the work for government for obvious reasons. With respect to the type of work we do, so most of my co-founders and I, we spend a lot of time in government service on both the offensive and defensive side of, of cybersecurity. So we understand what the reoccurring problems are and what the solutions that a lot of these government customers are looking for. So that's where the R&D aspect and the laboratory comes in, where we are pretty key in getting a lot of these new government research initiatives that are designed to solve a problem, Right. So great example is, is with DARPA, their social cyber effort it was focused on, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of something like the Linux kernel or some of this open source software in the world. Have you heard some of these names? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's familiar. I don't know in any detail, but yeah, it's familiar. Sure, sure. So, I mean, the Linux kernel is a great example, right? It's basically the operating system for a large proportion of the internet. If you're a business running a bunch of cloud applications on, say, Amazon or Google or even Microsoft's Azure, odds are you're using the Linux kernel. Okay. So any security issue in there is important. So, you know, that's a good example of DARPA focused on, on security issues within the Linux kernel and identifying those early on and something we've got a pretty massive research grant to go and pursue with them and that we're in the, the midst of productizing. I noticed that in December, you announced a collaboration with two other companies in this field, MITRE Corporation and Red Balloon Security, to provide services to those in the critical infrastructure sector. I assume that critical infrastructure means things like power stations, utilities, healthcare systems, etc. What, what else can you tell us about this partnership and, and how did that come about? Yeah, yeah, very interesting, that one. So MITRE is a is a good one to mention first. They are a nonprofit, I guess you would call them a federally funded research and development corporation. They create something called the MITRE ATT&CK framework, which is basically a, a standard dictionary or lexicon for talking about security vulnerabilities. So we were part with Red Balloon Security and MITRE in defining that standard and that lexicon for a critical infrastructure, which you're exactly correct, does include water, power, basically all those services that are controlled by computers and needed for the normal functioning of society. So we were responsible for defining some of the lexicon, the standards around protecting the control systems behind that. And that's a great example because that was another uh, result of a, of a DARPA program called Radix uh, that ran a, a few uh, few years ago. Um, 
which was really designed around if there's a, a nation state that attacks specifically the electric grid in the U.S., how do we bring that grid back from something called a black start? So in NARF, we actually developed both software and hardware to detect and remediate those compromises a lot quicker than it can be done currently. So the work with MITRE was all about setting standards around how we would get that technology into the what we call the control systems vendor's hands. So when we talk about control systems, I'm sure you've heard names like Siemens, maybe Schweitzer Electric, those sort of companies. They design these uh, very high-end pieces of hardware that control the flow of power to your home and a bunch of other industrial processes and need a fair amount of work to protect those pieces of hardware and critical infrastructure. How did that partnership come about with you three? During the Radix program, we developed several pieces of software and were able to detect these attacks. But interestingly enough, once we detected these attacks, we wanted to go to the hardware vendors and, and get them fixed, you know, the Siemens and the Schweitzers. And we found there wasn't a, a good common standard or lexicon to talk about, hey, we detected this attack and here's the consequence of this attack. So that, that was what the, the work with MITRE and Red Balloon was all about, defining that lexicon that could be put forward to the, the manufacturers uh, so we could really go about as cybersecurity practitioners really addressing and fixing these problems um, and making sure that our protection mechanisms were implemented and saying, hey, look, NARF software and this piece of critical infrastructure hardware really prevents this entire class of attacks and prevents these bad things from happening within critical infrastructure. And so that was how the partnership came about. We realized there was a gap that we needed to address by having that common vocabulary. And that's what we did. Yeah. Steve, how much of your business or NARF's business is developing new bits of software for the defense establishment in the US? And how much of it is CEO of a big Fortune 500 company calling up and saying, Steve, can you bring your team in and look for the weak points in our system and report back to us as to where we need to strengthen and improve? Yeah. I mean, 80 to 90% of it is focused on software development and productization. Because look, one of the key issues we have in cybersecurity today is that it takes 10 to 15 years to get a highly educated cybersecurity capable person who can also develop software. Yeah. And this is one of the areas that's really exciting about the AI trend and, and things like that in general. We're really focused on codifying my highly experienced team's knowledge in spotting attacks and responding to attacks automatically into software mm -hmm. rather than trading what we call dollars for hours and putting those guys in the field. Because there's a there's a lot of other organizations that, that do that, but it simply does not scale to meet the, the demand that we have. And you see that in all the cybersecurity incidents you've probably heard about lately. Let's just pick up on that theme a little bit more. So obviously, it's a really highly skilled job. So where do you go to recruit these guys? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting. So I'll give you a bit of personal background and that'll help sort of define at least one of our fertile recruiting grounds because it's also an interesting story. So uh, in the context of grad school and, and early in some of our careers, a lot of my co-founders and I and a lot of the the expert team we had, we all played something called Capture the Flag. Now, now, as you can imagine, with a bunch of uh, software nerds, uh, this isn't the version of Capture the Flag where we're all running around a field chasing each other. That's a little bit too athletic. This is the one where we're basically on a, a custom network of computers with custom software for the event. And our job as a team is to attack and defend the other team's hardware and software loadout. And so we're basically playing computer war games on a closed network. It's a kind of a battle of the hackers, essentially, isn't it? 
Exactly, exactly. There's something called DEFCON CTF for Capture the Flag every year in Vegas. And I encourage you to go online and look at images of the thing. It's, it's, you know, it's probably, I don't know, 100 to 150 people that are playing it between what's on the floor and people in the background up in hotel rooms. Uh, but it really is an, an international event with a, with a lot of exceptional brain power, uh, trying to push the boundaries effectively in computer security and attack and defense. Very interesting. So that's usually by reputation there and by technical skill within our network is, is how we recruit a lot of our technical people. Given the various escalating conflicts involving state and non-state actors around the world, has NARF been in more in demand at the moment? Yes. So we're in a position, especially for our R&D and development work, where we're turning things from you know research into programs, into products. We are spending a lot of time really choosing which research efforts we want to sign on to with respect to and it's not just DARPA. We actually have all the ARPAs. So there's not just the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency within the U.S. There's also IARPA, which is the intelligence version, ARPA-H, which is focused on cybersecurity and healthcare, et cetera. So we've really spent a lot of time figuring out which R&D we can have the most impact in. By most impact, we mean it has the potential to provide the broadest protective umbrella to clients who would highly value it. So that's how we really think about applying our research talent to things that really are going to end up as products and really are going to end up providing a big protective umbrella to downstream clients. Yeah, yeah. Just indulge me for a bit. I'm just going to go through a little bit of history and and forgive me if I'm off beam a bit with some of the dates. I'm sure you'll set me straight. So you founded NARF Industries in 2011, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. How did that come about? Yeah, so I had just left government service. I was a uh, research scientist at the at the Naval Research Lab, and we had spent a lot of time developing solutions within that job for some you know government customers to that lab. And I, I really wanted to take that to the next level. There were a lot of uh, people around that time frame that were also leaving government service uh, because we all basically went to grad school on our graduate school on government grants and got our computer science degrees masters and PhDs that way. Mm-hmm. And we really wanted to take some of the R&D we were giving to a government customer and get that out into the commercial world as well, because we were seeing uh, big effects there. So that was a lot of the reason for leaving government service and, and founding NARF in that time. And we started pretty immediately by transitioning our research success within the government to receiving the grants and, and things like that, such that we participated in a lot of the early artificial intelligence as applied to looking for security flaws and programs through DARPA. So that was one of our big early wins there. Now, your path to a London listing came via reverse takeover in June 2021, where NARF was bought for $25.6 million by Cyber, C-Y-B-A, which was a special acquisition vehicle that was listed in March 2021 with the purpose of buying a business in the cybersecurity sector. Now, talk us through that process. How did that, how did that work? We spent a fair amount of 2022 rejiggering and replacing the executive team and, and really getting into the operational aspects of, of our business in 2023. Mm-hmm. And we put our results out for 2023, but we, we had our pretty significant first year under that full operational team. So part of that was appointing our new executive chair about April of last year and executing on our business model where we're really trying to take these, these pillars of, of government R and D into the program. So operationalizing that R and D 
and then further commercializing that out to the commercial world. So really formalizing that business model past, you know, uh, what we had done pre-acquisition and really scaling it up is, is our focus now. But yeah, that was a, a interesting transaction. You know, there were a couple interesting geopolitical points in there going on. You know, the Ukrainian conflict mm-hmm. kicked off during that time near the acquisition. Yeah. And it's been an interesting operating environment for sure. So you've got a London listing. Given that you're a US-based company doing work for US government, why not move it? Why not move the listing to the US, to NASDAQ, for instance? Yeah, one of the things was just sizing at the time, right? You know, the the SPAC vehicle in the LLC, I think we were one of the few and definitely the only cybersecurity-focused one in the LLC. Yeah. It was more appropriate for our size and for our acquisition and growth strategy at that time, which as we're operationalizing the business has changed a bit. But those were some of the original reasons for being LSC listed. Yeah. So is the idea to stay in London for a bit or what's the medium to long-term plan? How do you see that playing out? Yeah, I think our, our the, the, the results we've published and, and sort of our evolution there speaks for itself, right? You know, we've committed to seeing if the market will recognize those results and if we can push things forward there in, in the London markets. But yes, in the medium term, we are definitely committed to what we've done. And I think you'll see that by the executive chair and the changes we've made to the board and things like that. So looking very much forward to this year and and what that'll bring in terms of results and world events really directly contributing to NARF's bottom line. Yeah. Is there any plan to do a similar thing with UK government or forge a similar partnership with UK government to what you do in the US? Are there any opportunities there, do you think? Definitely. The, the truth of the matter is, as we scale up the team, we have a fair amount of backlog with the US side already. We're obviously looking to add to that on the UK side. And I, I will say that we've worked both in our previous roles before NARF and uh, at NARF as well with elements of the UK. So we're very familiar with that. But I'd say in 2024, we're largely focused on the US and we're happy to address needs coming out of the UK but we're scaling up to meet that demand in addition to the US as well. Yeah, okay. Steve, could I take you back to the beginning now? So where did you grow up? What did your mom and dad do when you were growing up? And have you got siblings? What was childhood like? Sure, sure. Wow. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm, as, I'm about as far away in cybersecurity as my upbringing will allow. So uh, my family comes from a long line of, of farmers, both dairy and, and vegetable. And um, I actually got my first job by, you know, a bit of, bit of teenage mischief. I ended up on the computer systems of a couple local businesses uh, for exploratory purposes. This was pre-9-11 when that was still considered teenage mischief and not more sinister thing. <laughs> I was lucky enough at the time, this was the, the mid-90s, where uh, the, the IT guys and the administrators surrounding that were, were very old school. And they said, uh, you know, why don't you come work for us for the summer? We know that you're in these systems rather than not knowing you're in these systems. And so mid-90s in California, about two hours south of the Silicon Valley was a teenager, had hands-on hardware worth tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, that's really where my early experience with uh, these advanced networking and cybersecurity and IT systems started. You know, besides that, one sibling, uh, sister, who's, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> actually she just got into IT, but uh, she managed to uh, not become a farmer either. And um, father's still farming. I guess that makes sense being fairly close to Silicon Valley. How much of that influenced you? Sort of the, the proto stuff we take for granted today, like, you know, ubiquitous wireless networks everywhere. I, I remember as a teenager trying to get my hands on something called a ricochet modem. 
It was an early attempt at Wi-Fi. I don't know if you've ever seen these things. They were the they were like shoebox size. They put them on lampposts. The thing must have weighed like three or four pounds that you would connect to your laptop, and it was basically early Wi-Fi. So absolutely being close to the epicenter of the tech universe really influenced my early curiosity and figuring out how these things ticked and how access to them was controlled. And that's a lot of the basis for cybersecurity. Yeah, yeah. Where did you go to school and what were you good at? Were you encouraged into that, into technology? Oh, yeah. You know, so I really had to fall into the math thing. I got a lot better in in school. As you can imagine, in a small farming town in California, you know, math instruction might have been a little thin, Mm. but ended up at an engineering school at a place called Santa Clara, which is really the epicenter of Silicon Valley. I don't know if you remember 3Com. That was a huge networking conglomerate in the 90s. Cisco's there. So a lot of that money was dumped by alums back into Santa Clara. So they ended up having a very good engineering school that was very close to tech. And that's where I ended up for my undergrad as a computer engineer and had some more to learn. So I went directly into grad school before, which the U.S. federal government ended up paying for. And that was at a military institution called the Naval Postgraduate School. Very interesting school. We actually host tons of foreign military officers and provide them with a graduate education in things like computer science, but that was very focused on cybersecurity. Interesting thing about that is at a military institution, they have no problem teaching offensive as well as defensive cybersecurity for obvious reasons. And so it was a very interesting environment to be, you know, we had a class of maybe 25 and there was maybe five civilians and 20 uh, foreign and domestic military members all officers. So it was quite interesting to be side by side with the military members in the graduate program. Given that you went to Santa Clara University in California, were you into sports? Are you a San Francisco 49ers fan? Oh, you know, oh, my my mother is, I have a, she's a diehard 49ers fan. Uh, I didn't get that gene. You know, I'm, I think my sport of choice is probably uh, Muay Thai, like kickboxing. That's what I personally spend time on as a hobby. So yeah, but not so much into the football scene. American football, I have to qualify there. Sorry. That's my next question. What, what got you into that? You know, chance encounter. I was living in Japan for a few years and ended up at a, at a Muay Thai gym there because it was close to the house and I needed to do something. And I've been doing that for about the last 10 years, but it's fantastic exercise, great thinking time as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So after university, did you go and travel like a lot of students do, or did you want to get straight into work? Straight into work, straight into work. Straight up, yeah. Um, you know, I went from an engineering program to a, a graduate program that I just described. And the interesting thing about the graduate program and the reason we ended up at a military institution was it was a part of a U.S. federal program called Scholarship for Service. So the, the deal was you'd get a salary and your graduate degree paid for, and you would go work for the federal government for two years as a civilian in that field because the industry in general still has a real problem training, attracting, and retaining cybersecurity talent that can really scale towards the threat. So that program was meant to address that. And some of my other co-founders actually benefited from that same educational path, which is kind of one of the common links between us. Yeah. I was going to say, given that this is a fairly new field, but it's growing, isn't it? Are there any university programs that are specifically tailored towards this? Great question. Yeah. So this is one of the things that makes me really excited about the practitioner side of this. I'd say in the last 10 years, the amount of cybersecurity specific programs at universities, and you know, I did not look these numbers up, but have probably uh, quadrupled. Right. And it's a lot easier for an interested student at the high school level to say, 
I'm very interested in finding hackers and stopping them. What's the next step, right? It's it's very easy for them to get information. So uh, compared to when I was going into these programs, uh, there were probably six or seven of these well-regarded nationally. And now there's got to be 40 to 50 of them at, at major universities. So that's been really nice. It has made it a lot easier, um, you know, especially in that junior to mid-level talent to find people that have a real passion and interest in it and just need to put on some experiential years. I actually served as an adjunct at, at Santa Clara for a couple of years um, uh, teaching uh, cybersecurity management and a few other technical aspects of what I know. And that was a really nice way to see the current state of things. In terms of feeding back into university boards and stuff, I, I don't find myself with that much time these days. I'm pretty pretty content with some of the products coming out of these these universities and the, the talent coming out of them has been impressive. And you can see it in the Capture the Flag competitions and the average age there is is not near my age, that's for sure. <laughs> you mentioned Japan earlier and it's got me thinking, what were you doing? What took you there? Yeah, this was uh, post-government service pre-NARF. I started working on a web intelligence platform that was looking for counterfeit goods sold online. So worked there for a couple of years, built that software product up as a CTO for a small company, ended up selling the IP off to that and really dove into the NARF work around the 2010 timeframe, as you identified. So what's next for Steve Bassey and, and NARF? Yeah. So we're very focused on our 2024 revenue numbers right now. We've had great early success this year and we're on track to do better than last year, as well as really grow uh, the diversity of our government customers. As I said, we had all the ARPAs, basically, under NARF, or or most of the ARPAs. Last year, I believe we added uh, Health and and IARPA to that. So really taking our R&D portfolio wider at the base. Mm -hmm. And then we're focused on increasing that transition of research products into programs. So this is when they're operationalized within the government themselves. And so they're sort of buying those year over year, a recurring revenue software products from us. And this year, we're also looking forward to commercializing some of the the results from that. So those are the big what's next for us this year. Very excited about that, scaling the team up to to meet those demands. And we've done it before, looking forward to doing it again. Great stuff. Well, Steve Bassey, thanks so much for joining me on the All Points West podcast. Good luck with everything. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.